This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here. We've got a great program for you today. And before we get started, I did want to remind everybody that you can get more episodes if you go to theoryofchange.show. You can get the audio and video and transcript of all the episodes. And if you're a paid subscriber, you have unlimited access to every episode. And I appreciate everybody who is a paid subscriber. You are making this show possible. So thank you very much. And then also you can go to flux.community. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. So you can go to flux.community for more articles and podcasts about politics, religion, media, and society. And if you like what we're doing, please do support us. I definitely appreciate your help in that regard. All right. So with that little plug out of the way, let us get into today's program. This episode is the second in the Why We Left series. And it is a series that is going to be eventually an exclusive benefit for Flux subscribers or Theory of Change subscribers. But the first two episodes are going to be free to the public just so everybody can get a sense on how they are going to be working. So the second episode in this series is featuring Lance Aximit. He is an associate editor at Flux and he's also the author of a new book about growing up in a missionizing evangelical culture. And it's a very in-depth look at how both his own life fits into the larger trend of Christian radicalization in the United States. And it's an important book, so I do encourage everybody to read it. And it gives you a sense very well, I think, for people who don't have direct experience with growing up in these far-right Christian cultures that sometimes can be hard to understand just how totalizing they can be. So it is definitely worth checking out. And joining me today is Lance Aximit. He is the author of a new book called Youth Group, Coming of Age in the Church of Christian Nationalism. Thanks for being here, Lance. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. So your book is a memoir about your time growing up in a fundamentalist evangelical environment. Tell us where the setting begins and, and uh, let's maybe go from there. Yeah, so it kind of, it starts a little bit with me already deeply entrenched in evangelicalism in youth group, but as far as me personally and my interaction inside of evangelical, very strict evangelicalism, my parents were missionaries in Panama in Central America. We were in the depths of the Darien jungle when my parents were deported during the war with Noriega. From there, we moved all the way over to Wisconsin, where my parents started training other missionaries in getting them ready for going to the field. We worked for an organization called, at the time, it was called New Tribes Mission, which the whole point was to put as many people in as remote of locations as possible. And it was a non-denominational organization, which is just pretty much codenamed for strict evangelical organization. And... And from there, we kind of moved back and forth between being missionaries on the mission field in Panama and Nebraska, eventually, where I ended up and where my youth group years really started. For a lot of Americans or people living in the more industrialized world, they actually don't see a lot of missionaries from evangelicals running around the place. You yeah. basically see Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the evangelical missions generally don't spend too much time in the United States, except for on like reservations, as well as to the Amish. I actually have had a few friends who were missionaries to the Amish, which is an interesting endeavor, if you ask me. But uh, yeah, so NTM, New Tribes Mission, was 
I think still is the second largest missionary organization from the United States. And they, like I said, specialize in sending into remote locations. But interestingly enough, primarily they were sending people to already evangelized locations. So for example, where we were, the Catholics had already come through almost a hundred years prior and a lot of the people were already Catholic. So we were being, we were evangelizing to Christians ostensibly, except for at that time, Catholics were not considered Christians by our organization. So from all across the world, if you go over to, I think a good example that I have in the book is in uh, Papua New Guinea, where there is a, a small group of people and they were being evangelized to by New Tribes Mission. They had been Catholics for a very long time, but some missionaries showed up and essentially kind of, kind of tricked the people into becoming Christians, but they wouldn't even call themselves Christians. They would call themselves followers of the New Tribes Mission, which is, I think, a good indicator of how that went. They show up with a Bible, and in this culture, they had a local deity called, if I'm pronouncing it right, Tiki Loco. And this local deity was a god that had many different personas, many different faces. And during World War II, one of those personas ended up being one that came from America because it, it kind of transitioned into a bit of a cargo cult. And when the new transmission showed up, they used that history and saying, oh, look, your god is just, this is the same god, but he goes by the name Jesus here. And look, he's in this book. He's in this book and it's got pointing to the Bible. And they're like, oh, our God's in your book. That must be how we, uh, that must be the right book. And then they essentially became followers of the New Tribes mission via that kind of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's an interesting tactic because it is like, it is, if you actually look at the history of missionizing Christianity, like it was a very common technique. Yeah, um, they did. I mean, it's in the Bible. Paul, <laughs> uh, Paul does it in the Book of Acts. And uh, curiously enough, there's a, a parallel with Mormonism because they actually have done that with a Aztec god called Quetzalcoatl. Yes, um, who they claim is Jesus, because in the Book of Mormon, there is a story of Jesus after he's resurrected, coming and visiting the ancient Jews who lived mm-hmm. in America. And according, and then so basically, they use the Quetzalcoatl story to tell people, "See, this was our guy. Uh, you should join up." So it's an interesting. It's sometimes people. So the term for this, the scholarly term for this, is syncretism, where you mm-hmm. take a, for a piece of one religion and stick it into another one. Or, and sometimes people who are in the culture we're talking about here, they don't like to think that that's what they're doing. When, when it comes to their more basic beliefs, but in terms of their evangelizing, they absolutely are doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's so disingenuous on the part of a lot of the missionaries because I'm not speaking from Mormonism here, but I do know for a fact inside of our mission field, they did not believe that was the same God at all. Like they did not believe that this person was Jesus. In fact, it was something that was is actively discouraged by the mission. I must give them that. They say, don't do this thing that these missionaries then did. The interesting part is that my later, after about maybe 40 years after that whole incident took place, my father, who he actually worked on video productions for a while, he created a video about the, the evangelizing to this people group. And I grew up watching this video. And uh, when I was researching for this book, I came to mind and I was able to reach out to an anthropologist who, like the only anthropologist who worked with this group of people and talk to him about it and getting those two viewpoints between the anthropologist and what, you know, my viewpoint of watching this video and my dad's for making this video and a few other missionaries. 
And it was, uh, you know, kind of a fascinating personal connection to that group of people all the way across the world. Mm -hmm. And so now the name New Tribes, where, what, what's the derivation of that? Yeah, so New Tribes Mission was essentially the idea, like I said, to send people into the most remote locations. It was a, it's, it's essentially when a man, when someone accepts Jesus to become a new creation, just that with tribes. So New Tribes Mission. And they have changed their name to Ethnos 360, which is, I guess, trendy branding. Also because New Tribes Mission has, in the last you know, 20 years, found itself in a lot of scandals sexual abuse scandals, uh, physical abuse scandals, all sorts of things across the globe as mission organizations are wont to do. So, Yeah, yeah. And we'll um, talk about some of that a little bit later. But so, so what age were you when, when your parents decided to go and do that? I was born in Panama, so I've you know, got dual citizenship, which is nice. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I was born there. I was about uh, one and a half years old. I, I don't remember the whole deportation. Um, that's recounted in the book. That was from interviewing my parents. Essentially, they my during that time, anyone who was kind of in a, a sensitive area for Noriega, the, the dictator of Panama at the time, was suspect for being an American spy, especially if you were American. And so they kind of showed up at our house, said that we had an illegal radio, which we didn't at the time. I mean, we did have one, but not then. And then they took my dad, left the rest of us there in the jungle, and we heard back from him a week later, he was in Florida. Apparently they had questioned him thoroughly and were either too afraid that he might actually be a spy or that he wasn't a spy. And either way, they didn't want to just make him disappear um, because it might, they were kind of in a precarious position with the United States at the time. So they decided the best thing apparently was just to put him on a plane to Florida. And then he called us, called the mission and the mission told us that we he was alive in Florida, and then we got on a plane in the following week. Yeah. So the time frame here, what what is this? The early yeah, that would have been that would have been in nineteen eighty nine. Okay, late nineties. Okay. Yeah. So uh, just for, so for people who don't know who uh, Manuel Noriega was, uh, maybe you can <laughs> yeah describe that. Yeah. So Noriega was a dictator that was a CIA puppet for the majority of his career. He ran afoul of George. H.W. Bush, when when his name kept coming up inside of some kind of clandestine files. So anyone who knows anything about Bush Sr. knows that he was the head of the CIA, but apparently he was the head of the CIA just spontaneously. He had no affiliation with the CIA before he led it, which is a little bit irregular. It's come out more recently that he was likely part of the CIA before that point. But yeah, so when that started coming out, it was a little bit of embarrassing connections to Noriega. Noriega had a lot of drug dealing, a lot of different... He was essentially a thug of Panama. He had come into power via his CIA connections and also riding a ride of kind of a wave of popularity from his predecessor, Omar Torrio. Torrio was a not necessarily a democratic hero, but he definitely was a hero of Panama. He represented the people in ways that no other leader at that time had. And he died in suspicious ways. And the CIA was indicated in that. So Noriega, when he came into power, and then his CIA connections kind of came out into Panama, the Panamanian citizens didn't really like him. And then the US didn't really like him. And it kind of ended with his ousting in 1989. So your father's sent back to Florida. Mm -hmm. What happens after that? Yeah, so at that point, they were trying to sort out what they could do. They didn't, they were still inside the mission. The mission 
placed them inside of a missionary training boot camp, is what they called it, up in Wisconsin. Uh, it was a compound, essentially a commune, a Christian commune. Everybody worked, they had gardens, it was a self-sustaining commune. And my parents helped train other missionaries to go to did the Did they field. call it a commune, though? They did not. <laughs> they did not. It was a boot camp. Very militaristic. It was a boot camp. And yeah, so they had classes teaching theology, all these things. Women were not allowed to teach any of the classes. Women weren't allowed to wear jeans for the first part. It finally switched over towards the end. They were able to wear pants. They had to wear dresses at first. You weren't allowed to play cards. We weren't allowed to go to the movies. Very much strict fundamentalism ideology and, and, and theology. As a kid, I grew up being taught about the end of the world from like a very strangely young age, right? I was, uh, I remember my sister and I, I write about this in the book, we were convinced that my dad might be the Antichrist because our kindergarten teacher had told us that the Antichrist would be somebody that everybody liked, it was really nice, and but then turns out to be evil. And so like, wait a second, the nicest person we know right now is our dad. He's probably the Antichrist. So yeah, there's a lot of those sort of things. I would wake up every morning and like go down to the window to look out the window to see if Jesus had come back yet, because that was the thing that we were all supposed to be looking forward to. Um, I would, I was, I was constantly terrified of going to hell because like I didn't fully understand. It's impossible to explain theology to a child. And I didn't understand any of it. I just knew that hell existed and it was a terrible place. And I didn't want to go there. And so like, I would have like panic attacks as a child, like for years being like, I don't know, this is a bad place. I don't want to go there. And my mom would have to explain like, it, we don't believe you will like that kind of stuff. So it was, it was mm -hmm. an interesting upbringing in that area, but we were there until 95. And in 95, we were able to go back to Panama because all my dad's, apparently his records had been, had disappeared. Yeah. Well, and so to just go back to what you were saying about mm -hmm. this end of the world yeah. uh, obsessions, I think having had some of those same things kind of inculcated to me when I was born in fundamentalist Mormonism, I think a lot of people who haven't really seen that up close, and that's part of why I was glad to do a blurb for your book and to support you here, because I think a lot of people, they don't really understand, like, this is a totalizing worldview. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, talk about that a little bit if yeah. you could. Yeah, there's, it's something I think that I was definitely on the more extreme end of what children received inside of evangelicalism, the more fundamentalist. Not everybody inside of who went to Sunday school where it was taught about the Antichrist or that demons could possess anything. That's one another fear that my, we had was that our stuffed animals were possessed by demons because they could possess anything. So we had lots of fears, all entirely based upon things we were taught inside of our Sunday schools and, and preschools and kindergartens because we they were all inside the same area being taught by the same people. And the very prominent amongst all of the teaching was that it, the end of the world was coming. And I, I think, I believe that most people personally believe that the end of the world was probably going to happen before they died. I know that's, that was a conversation that I would pick up on a lot was like, it's a fallen world. We need to do our best to reach all these. That was part of the whole point of missions was that they believed that by contacting all these all these tribes around the world, all these remote places, was that then the and then Jesus could come back because Jesus said that every tongue will speak and 
everybody must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, so they can't do that if they never heard about it. So missions was essentially to bring about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it is, I, I, I can't emphasize enough that we're, we live in a country where there are literally millions of people going yeah. around every day and they think about this stuff every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that's something that's kind of lost on some people when they see, I mean, and there's millions of grifters out there, don't get me wrong, but when they see these people spouting what seems to be nonsense, they assume that they're grifting, that they, they assume that they're trying to take advantage of people's fears. But in my experience, uh, the reality is that while there are some very prominent grifters, a huge amount of them truly believe this. This is something that they are doing because of a heartfelt conviction. There, this is something that is, I, I was one of those people. I was, I never thought I was trying to gain influence through my, my Christianity. It was because I thought that people I cared about were going to go to hell forever and the world was ending and that, which all ties into like why global warming doesn't matter or any of these things. It's it, a lot of it's tied into this belief system that the world's ending. It's a fallen world. Why are we concerned about these things? We should be concerned about saving people's souls, not feeding them. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that is, that really does fit into a lot of far right Republican you know, policy ideas now that they, especially in regards to the environment. I mean, you see mm -hmm. that a lot that, well, it doesn't, none of this stuff matters because Jesus is going to come back and fix everything. So yeah. who cares? Yeah. And he promised he would never flood the world again, right? So we don't have to worry about the ice melts or anything. That, oh, yeah, yeah, good point there. <laughs> and another kind of example of this sort of nonchalant attitude about uh, terrible and tragic things and sort of a refusal to plan or even respond to them in any way was during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2021, uh, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, he, he said something that was extremely revealing, and I'll just put it up on the screen for those watching and then read it off here. He said, I'm often asked by some of my friends on the other side of the aisle about COVID. And why does it seem like folks in Mississippi and maybe in the Mid-South are a little less scared, shall we say? When you believe in eternal life, when you believe that living on this earth is but a blip on the screen, then you don't have to be so scared of things. Uh, and so he, he caught a lot of flack for that, but not enough, I don't think. I think to this day, most people have, outside of people who do cover this stuff in journalistically like you and I do, I would say most people have never heard that quote. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's indicative of how the majority of American press deal with any sort of religious anything. They give it a pass in a way that doesn't exist for anything else. Like uh, they can say, people can say the most obscene and ridiculous things, but as long as it's coded in biblical language, they're able to just be like, okay, yeah, that's, that's okay. Like, and it happens all the time. The most ridiculous things are uttered by pastors from the pulpit, pastors who have massive, massive followings and not just like fringe ones, politicians, like they say these things and then the media either just doesn't cover it or they even cover it in almost a positive way. Like, well, that's a one way of thinking of it kind of deal. Mm -hmm. And you, do you think that that's because they've just got this sort of, I don't know, reflexive, brain dead, well, we have to respect everybody's religion. Is that what think, it is? Yeah, I think that's part of it, but I do, that definitely does, when it does exist. I think also a huge part of it is just the 
civic civic religion of America being Christianity and everyone's kind of grown up in it in some aspect or another. And so when you hear these things that would be outlandish to anyone from like the Netherlands, <laughs> to us as Americans, we hear it, we're like, oh yeah, like, like we don't even, we don't even question why people are saying this or how this is a belief that exists in the 21st century. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and some people who do kind of write about far right movements and sort of neo-fascism, to them, they, they, they want to check everybody and put everybody into the Hitler Mussolini mm -hmm. box. And, yeah. and the reality is most of these people have never read anything of, from Hitler or Mussolini, <laughs> might not even know who Mussolini was. <laughs> so to say that this, so like I, some people I think are kind of ignoring it in another, for that reason as well, that it's, it doesn't have the language of this explicit Germanic and neo, I don't know, sort of a Nietzschean yeah. overtones. And so it's hard for them to see the authoritarian as well. Yeah. It, they and I think that like we've come to see authoritarianism as not as dangerous as it is. Like we think of in America at least, I think a huge percentage of the population thinks authoritarianism and communism are the same thing, right? And they don't think authoritarianism like even they're excusing so much so many forms of authoritarianism that exist outside of Stalinism. It's like that they don't even have a problem with it. And it's also we also have the quote of United States of amnesia, right? We have a very limited historical knowledge. I, we're very much like, oh, the past doesn't matter. It doesn't influence us in any way. The only thing that matters is what we're doing right now. And we're not influenced at all by the, the fact that Franco and DeSantis have a lot in common. Like there's not like these things don't don't matter to us in a way that if we were a little bit more historically literate, I think we would be a, a bit more on edge, a little bit re more ready to to act when these things are thrown up these clearly damaging ideas and these clearly like dangerous propositions are put out there mm -hmm. all right well so you moved around a bunch and so you when you were back in panama as much as they as you you write in the book about how you while your sort of curricula was strongly controlled your sort of personal time really didn't involve a lot of supervision. Um, None. <laughs> tell us like, about some of those stories. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. So my, my personal time had very little supervision unless those times were us being out with like local people. There was very much a fear of the being too close to the Panamanian citizens. Like there's too, a fear of being too chummy with our neighbors because there was a different culture between obviously evangelical missionaries and just everyday people living in the community that we were, our compound was placed into. And that, so there was very much supervision when we were with these guys, cause they didn't want to, their sinful nature rubbing off on us. But as far as if we were just to go out, like my friend and I, we would go, oh, we'd stay out all day. We'd bike to this river which is this river, this place has a special place. I think a lot of people have like a special spot in their mind that they go to if they're trying to like maybe calm down or whatever. I think it was where Herzog, he talks about his is this waterfall in, in Germany. But mine is this river in Panama that I would take, it was several miles from where I lived. We, it was, you'd have to cross these cow pastures with these really angry bulls who would always chase you. And if they ever got to you, they would wreck you. Like one time one got to me and I had to throw my bike at it and it just destroyed my bike. 
but <laughs> I got through it and we get to this river and the river's got is full of caiman, these little crocodiles and there's toucans everywhere. There's these beautiful wildlife. And I would spend my entire day there to hunt these crocodiles, which I was a kid thinking I could do that. I never obviously got one. We would make like these wooden spears out of sticks and we'd throw them at them and it just bounce off their backs. But one time I did try and I, I came up with an idea where I had a, a dead bird and I was cl climbed out over a branch over the water and my friend was with me and we we're dipping the bird into the water trying to get the alligator the crocodile's attention and they all kind of came there's about you know 30 of these guys in the water and they're all underneath us when my friend said I think this I think this branch is a little a little unstable and it cracked it cracked between him and me and I was on the branch that fell into the water and he was still up in the tree so I fell about I don't know maybe five or six feet into the water tangled up in this branch holding a dead bird while these alligators are even more interested in all the commotion kind of came even closer and my friends are shouting throw the bird but I had just spent uh, the better part of the day trapping and killing this bird to use as bait and so I didn't want to throw it and I held on to a really long time until I could see the eyes of these guys like in my eyes tossed it and I, I swear I, I ran on water back to shore managed not to get eaten but yeah that's where I that's where I spent all my time in, in my as far as special places go that's always got a special place in my heart that river <laughs> Yeah. And now did you, did you tell your parents what had happened? I think probably like a few days later. Yeah. And it didn't influence their decisions at all on whether or not I should go back to the river. Just kind of like a bit of an admonishment. You gotta be careful, Lance. Then I guess it worked out, but yeah, no, I, like as far as supervision goes. And I remember we would have access to a crazy amount of like fireworks because it was fireworks, a big deal down there. And I would, one time I would cut open a firework, got all the gunpowder out to like, just blow random stuff up. And unfortunately, I wasn't very careful. I had a sandwich bag full of gunpowder in my hands that went off and it just burned all the skin off my hands, all of it. I had to go to the hospital every other day for like 12 days for them to like cut the dead skin off. It was terrible. Again, very little change in my oversight after that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so hopefully that should give people an idea <laughs> um, <laughs> of how it works. Yeah, I think that's a good point. All right, so you, so you were doing this, you were brought up to do this. And so not only were you living in these facilities, basically in the middle of nowhere, you were also extensively part of the homeschool culture. And, and I think that that's another aspect of this extremist uh, evangelicalism that a lot of people haven't really seen a lot. And maybe they're getting a little taste of it with some of the recent documentary about mm -hmm. The Duggar family. Um, I haven't seen that yet, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch it eventually. I've got. It's on my uh, bucket list. I got to get to that. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's so. I. But I mean, that's part of the idea of this being a totalizing ideology. That that not only are they giving you constant, you have to go to a, a religious, explicitly religious instruction all the time. But then also your, they control your secular learning mm -hmm. as well and basically turn that also into religious instruction tell yeah. us how that worked for you in your own life yeah so like i transitioned from either private school to homeschooling to private school and by private school i mean private christian school i didn't go to a public school until one year in middle school and then again in 10th grade in high school so those were outside of those timeframes, it was all either homeschooled or religious private schools. And my friends were homeschooled. My best friends, they were homeschooled. It was very much a belief that education, the public education system's entire endeavor was to indoctrinate us to, it, 
convince us that God wasn't real and that evolution was. Essentially, I think that's, if I could boil down what I thought the problem was as a kid, was that like they wanted me to believe in evolution and that if evolution was true, then God wasn't. And so it's an interesting ecosystem that you get put into inside these private Christian schools. Like, I think there's a lot that can be said for for homeschooling and there's i got some a good education out of it but it is a definitely a form of making sure that you believe what your parents do and i was taught inside the private schools the private christian schools that for example that people and dinosaurs lived at the same time in fact i had a coloring book as a kid that had dinosaurs it was like a christian coloring book it had noah's ark all that stuff it had dinosaurs with saddles on them so that way you could like people rode dinosaurs that's that was because they had to exist at the same time. So people had to interact with them. So I guess they rode them at some point. We were taught inside of my, my school that the earth had a large ice shield around it at one point, which trapped in higher levels of oxygen, which was what allowed lizards, which all dinosaurs are, are lizards that grow really big. And it, the higher amounts of oxygen caused the lizards to grow into dinosaurs. And that's all that they were. And that was all 6,000 years ago, very, very recent. And the flood is what caused them all to be buried in layers that are not at all uniform, I guess. <laughs> the, there's some hazy logic that takes place there, but the science was definitely one of the most um, difficult things to start taking when I went to public school. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I think people, again, so many people, like this is such an insular subculture yeah. that people who haven't seen it themselves or known someone who was in it, it's 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 almost impossible as you as you were saying it's impossible to believe that people in the 21st century have these ideas mm -hmm. like you don't want to think that because i mean it's like they it's like they thought the flintstones you you thought the flintstones yeah. were a documentary yeah. <laughs> yeah essentially like that's what it was like there was people in pre flood that's probably what the life was like for most people <laughs> yeah and 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 it's related though because this type of deliberate delusion because like I, I think and I, I don't want to speak for you but like for me I knew I didn't believe necessarily in the 6,000 year old mm. earth idea but I did believe that somehow or another it was I never tried to completely make it make sense because I just couldn't yeah. uh, but there's always that tension though and that everybody who was brought up in these beliefs has that science debunks your beliefs but you also know that your beliefs have to be true because mm -hmm. they're based on the bible and the bible is true because the bible says it's true mm -hmm. uh, and and it's like it created the environment like this type of kind of messed up epistemology like donald trump is the perfect person yeah. for this like when people say well how can people really believe that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. How can they really actually believe that? And it's like, well, talk to Lance. <laughs> no, for real. Like I, I like that's what I write about. It's like when you grow up where in a ecosystem where believing the most bizarre things is counted unto you as righteousness, right? Like that your faith in the most obviously untrue things is a good thing. When you're brought up to believe that, then believing other random BS is not hard to do, right? It's not just not hard, it's second nature, which is kind of why like when Trump did, like I expect 
when I saw him on there, I was, I expected him to get the Republican nomination. When I saw him running, I was like, he seems like he's saying all, like all the things that captures the grievance culture that I grew up in. Like I, this was like, yeah, he's going to get, I was surprised when he won the presidency. I thought the electoral college was going to go with Hillary. I was convinced of that, but I was surprised by that, but that he was the nomination. I was like, of course, like that, that makes tons of sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so, so you, you went to high school for your 10th grade year public high school how so science was hard for you what else what other sort of culture shocks did you have i mean like that my school had gay kids that was like like because that was something that i was completely unfamiliar with so it was really interesting because i went there and i was weird enough that like nobody was really like nobody was really my friend at first and the first group of people to like accept me were like the goth kids and uh, most of the goth kids were, the ter- term didn't really exist at a time as far as I was aware and any of them were aware, but they were probably like, we would call like non-binary uh, kids today. Like, and they were super accepting of me and super kind. And I just immediately fit in with that group of kids. And it, that was a really hard thing. Cause like these guys were like really awesome. I, I really liked them. And so the, <laughs> I, re- I remember one particularly cringeworthy event where I was, cause it was my duty to proselytize and get these kids to church because that's what youth group was all about was getting the lost in the lost sheep back to the flock, trying to get these kids into church. And so I, I would invite them to youth group all the time. And a lot of them would go with me and they would be like, okay, that was fun and not come back. And so like, I got a lot of them. And I remember one conversation I had with this girl that I really liked, I had this huge crush on. And she, like, she was bi and I knew that. And I was like, I love you, but I hate the sin. Like I had that, I literally had that conversation with her. And I, looking back on it, it's still like, I like clenched my teeth. Like, it's just so painful to try and remember that. And she was incredibly gracious with me. She was just like, okay, all right. And just like, kind of just let it roll off her back and we still hung out and we're friends. Like I, I wouldn't have been friends with me, but she still was. And like, that was something that like, just recognizing that these people that weren't evangelical Christians, they weren't even Catholics, they were good people. Right. And like, that was kind of like hard to reconcile. And then I think also it was inside of a classroom. This is when, like, I think the very first like real crack in my belief system happened was when we were having a debate. Like I had a really great teacher, an English teacher, Ms. Sarah Skeen, who I love to death. And at the end of the year, she would have these debates and we picked different ones. And one of them was whether or not creative design should be taught in the classroom. And of course I was in the pro creative design argument. And I started having, we had this debate with this other kid and he brought up kangaroos, which I had never heard at the time. He's like, okay, well, kangaroos only, their skeletons only exist in Australia. They never found kangaroo skeletons in Europe or North America. And if they were all over the world, like and the world was all one thing that recently, how and why are the bones only there? And I was like, like, it's weird that that simple, silly little fact was the first thing to just like, just it hit me so hard that for like the rest of the day, I remember just kind of like running over it in my head a million times and just being like, I don't know. Why is that? Why is that the case? And I, I think that was like a kind of a keystone moment for me. And from that point forward, I definitely, every bit of factual evidence, every sort of thing that kind of came my way that just didn't fit, I considered at a deeper level than I had ever before. And when you get enough of those things, it's just, it becomes impossible to, to maintain the, this 
these two worldviews in your head at the same time, it's, it, it, you have to select one at some point. Mm, yeah. Well, and so you, the title of the book is Youth Group. Um, yeah. So you started going to youth group. So, so I think maybe people might have some general idea of what these are, but tell us about the ones that you went to. Yeah. So, yeah, I went to lots of youth groups because it was one of the few opportunities for like unsupervised co-mingling between me and other people were. So like mostly like that's where girls were. I was a high school boy and like that's where the only time I was able to like see other people that weren't inside of my religious clique mostly. And so I went to youth group, the primary youth group I went to every single Tuesday night, but then I went to another church's youth group every Wednesday. I went to one which was in the mornings at my school every Wednesday morning. And then another one. So essentially at one time I would go to five different youth groups a week. And they were all these, if anyone who went to these things kind of knows what I'm talking about when I talk, when I say that they are just kind of glitzy, lots of like lights trying, the whole idea was to try and get kids into the church. And so they would have the most ridiculous events. Like I had a goldfish eating competition where like you'd eat live goldfish. Like that was a thing that this happened in a church. Like they would have like these bizarre events to try and get lots of kids into these things. And these youth groups were very, I mean, still are, but were very, very popular across my experience was mostly the Midwest. And they would, they, in these youth groups, once they'd have kind of like a cycle, right? They'd start off with at the beginning of the year, just talking about the basics of Christianity and these different things. And then as the year progressed, they would start eventually always get back to the end of the world, which is always something that we would discuss with just a bizarre amount of like levity, which like we would talk about, like it was really a deep and heavy conversation, but we were all super excited about it and like, kind of like, yeah, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to kill everybody everybody like everybody's gonna die who's not a christian and they're gonna go to hell for forever but yet we were like excited about it it's just like a, we, but we knew we weren't supposed to be and these conversations would come up all the time and we would just talk about like that's that's why our my church i went to which was a christian missionary alliance church one of their big things was missions and so like our church youth group would go to we went to haiti to on a missions trip to try and I don't know what we were trying to do there, but try and save people. But yeah, the, these youth groups, the whole intention was essentially an evangelism tool to make sure one, that the church kids stayed in the church and two, for the church kids to get outside kids who weren't in the church into the church. So that was the whole point of youth groups. And they would circulate some of the most oftentimes sexist and awful messages, misogynist messages when it came to like, like purity culture and all those things. As a guy, I was lucky enough to kind of be on the male end of that, which was bad enough. Like I would meet every Thursday morning at a Burger King at 6 a.m. where we would discuss the last time we watched internet porn or masturbated. Like, and we would be like, I called it an accountability group. And this was something that we had to do. And we would read Every Man's Battle, which was a, a terrible book. Uh, and this was like constantly guilting, like guilting us into like, just feeling terrible about ourselves was, which was not the point they would say, but essentially it was because every single bit of it was like, you should feel really bad. And that's why you shouldn't do these things. And if you do these things, God's really upset with you. And then obviously girls had it really terrible too, because their entire value was placed upon purity culture. Like if they were impure, they had no value to God or to their future husbands, which they of course wanted. So like it was, it, that was probably, I think, if you talk to anybody inside of youth groups in that time frame, that's probably one of the first things that they might, you know, come to mind. And uh, just 
to step back so yeah. in case people were casually listening to what you just said <laughs> your church group was requiring teenage boys to get together and tell on each other if yeah. they were touching themselves. Yes, yes. That was, I should say it was a soft requirement. You could still go to youth group, but it was very much like the leadership team was required. Like it was, I, I, I don't remember them saying you have to go, but like, yeah, you had to go <laughs> kind of deal. And I was in the leadership team. And so it was, it was about five or six guys every Thursday morning. And that's what we did. And it was like, it's interesting because later, much later on in life, I, I started reading Jeff Charlotte's book, C Street. And he talks about how the family, the fellowship, they actually did the exact same thing. <laughs> they talk about where they have these accountability groups. But I doubt adults. They met at Burger King, but adults. Or government right? officials. Government <laughs> officials. And I doubt they met at Burger King, but they would have the exact same accountability groups about the exact same things. And I was just like, wow. All right. Like I, it was kind of, I know that was kind of eye-opening for me as well. I, I thought it was just kind of something they were able to pull on unsuspecting teenage boys, not grown government officials. But Yeah. But on the other hand, if you were born and raised in that mm -hmm. environment where being asked questions of, about such a personal nature that that's okay, then yeah. you, you can be asked that at any age. Um, right. Or if your entire housing, like in the case of C Street, is being paid for the people asking you to go to these things, and there's also that. <laughs> so, all right, so you you somehow survived your childhood. Somehow. Um, yeah, and so you start, you're thinking about college. How? What? Let's get into that experience yes. for you. So I, again, I was in high school and I was in youth group, and it was pretty much a given that I was going to go into the mission field at some level. Like there was... One was I couldn't, the way that I grew up being free to like wander around in the jungles and catching snakes and spiders and everything like that was very much influenced what I wanted to do. And I knew that I didn't want to just go to, didn't want to just go to college. Like that wasn't for me. I couldn't envision myself going through what I thought to be just another four years of high school. So I was like, I could go to the mission field. Like that would be okay. So I was going to go to Bible school. So I went to visit a couple Bible schools. I went to one in Wisconsin, which was New Tribes Missions Bible School that they train all of their people in non, I, I believe at the time, non-accredited school. I'm pretty sure it still is non-accredited school. Um, train all their people in, in uh, they can get their degrees in hermeneutics or, or whatever, and then send them off to the mission field. And I went there and it was, it was such a strict, like the rules there. I, I remember even for me, like I was like, oh my goodness, I can't do that. Like, the boys and girls like weren't allowed to interact without supervision of like chaperones. And it was like you, they, the buildings were completely different where they, where, where the girls and boys could interact at, at all. Like it, and there was always like very strict rules on what you could and couldn't do. And I was just like, I don't know if that's for me either, but I knew I wanted to go. I wanted to be in the missionary. I wanted to be a missionary. That's because that's the only thing I could think of that was even close to being what I grew up with and what I wanted to, wanted to do with my life. So I was really lost. I was like, I, I didn't know what to do. So eventually I just was like, you know what? I'm going to travel. Like I'm going to, I'm going to take, pack a bag, buy a ticket. I'm going to just, I'm going to travel the world. So I ended up working really uh, crazy amounts, like around 80 hours a week at multiple jobs, um, saving every penny. And then I, I bought, as soon as I had enough money, 
I, I kind of ran a little bit of a, a, a scam on the U.S. Mint. <laughs> I don't know if that's a story we want to get into here. It's in the book and bought a ticket to Vietnam because like that's what I wanted to do. At this time, my evangelicalism had been cracking enough that I, I knew I wanted, I couldn't fully dispose of these old beliefs that I had, but I knew that I couldn't exist inside of that same inside of the same frame of mind and, and do what I wanted to do. So I kind of was shifting to more of a kind of bland spirituality, like there's God loves everyone, that kind of kind of vibe. I didn't want to think about like what my views were on hell were because I knew I had like in my mind, I had to believe in hell if I believed in God. So I just kind of was like, did, I, I just kind of stopped thinking about it and just was like, I'm going to, I'm going to travel. And so I packed my bag and went to Vietnam. Do you want to get into the Vietnam stuff sure. or do you want to like, I, I, don't, I don't want to spoil the book for, for people. No, no. Um, yeah. The, the book itself, I mean, it is, it's more than just my life. It, it also has like the historical foundations of Christian nationalism in America through four time frames of the Great Awakening, the Civil War, the Russian counter-revolution and, and Ronald Reagan. So there's a lot in there that I don't know if we're going to jump into any much of that. But as far as mine, I'm more than happy to talk about. Yeah. So like Vietnam was something completely unexpected for me. So I, when I got there, I immediately felt like there wasn't room in me for like what I was encountering and experiencing and for who I was at the time when I arrived. I kind of I came across so much. Up to that point, I had essentially what I think of as two religions. I had Christianity, evangelicalism, and then I also had American exceptionalism. And my view of American exceptionalism completely shattered in Vietnam and Cambodia when I was like confronted with like the war crimes of, of Henry Kissinger or what took place in Vietnam and like what America had done in Southeast Asia and the realities of those situations of, of seeing still orphanages full of children with deformities from Agent Orange and like seeing these things and putting that into like my belief system of like, America is the city upon the hill. It, it just didn't work. And so that I think shattered my, my, my first religion, which was American exceptionalism, the first religion to shatter, I should say. And when that broke, my, the remnants of Christianity wasn't far behind. So traveling throughout Southeast Asia, I eventually worked in Laos, and I, which is a, ostensibly a, a communist country, and kind of realizing that like the strict lines between good American capitalism, bad communist, any form of socialism, that, that kind of that was done away with. And in, in short order, I kind of started, I did kind of a, a Benjamin Button of Christopher Hitchens, actually, which is something I don't really write about. But I, I started kind of looking into things, started reading things. And of course, I came across like some, a lot of the debates with Christopher Hitchens and the other guys. And that kind of started having me reevaluate my religion. And I started following his stuff backwards towards, towards socialism. Because at the time, I was still a proponent of the Iraq war and all these different things. And so was he. And so it kind of like got me in there. And I wanted to read more. So I read back. And then I started disagreeing with him and kind of dovetailing, kind of splitting away from that. But it was kind of, I've recently come across a lot of people who have had a very similar reverse growth when it comes to Christopher Hitchens and how they kind of helped break out, break them out of their religious fundamentalism, but then starts parting ways when it came towards more of the American interventionalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and so after, while the, I guess after that happened and you kind of began pulling away from the, your, your, how you were raised, 
You also, you write toward the end of the book about you got sucked into another subculture yep. um, on the internet, which unfortunately has become a lot more prominent since you, you experienced it. And yes. tell us about what that culture was and your, how it was for you. Yeah, so that was at the very beginning of the Christopher Hitchens phase. So Christopher Hitchens, I started watching his debates. There, anyone who's watched them, he's an eloquent speaker. He's very persuasive, even if he's not the most in-depth as far as his actual critiques go, as, as far as Christianity goes. So I was like looking for a bit more. So I started finding Harris and the other, what do they call them, the Four Horsemen, all those guys. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Kept reading and watching, and but very quickly... The new atheist line is because this is, YouTube knows what it's doing to get views would really shift you into white genocide. Like you would go from like watching something about how all the religious fundamentalists in the 20th century were primarily fascists, like fascism and religious fundamentalism. And that was almost equitable throughout a huge period of time. And also the next video was like, yeah, there's a white genocide. And you're like, what? There is? And so like you're watching this and you start watching things like Auschwitz had swimming pools. Like there's all these videos that just are shot at you. And luckily enough for me, when that, I I had met my wife at that time, she was a big help with like, because I would, a lot of times the people who are watching these things are single dudes and they don't have a whole lot of people to talk to who aren't outside of that sphere. And so like I had somebody to talk to that was like, some of these ideas were like, like, oh, did you know this? And she's like, oh, that doesn't sound right. And I personally, like, I hate being wrong. Like I absolutely hate being wrong about stuff. And so I did more research, but there was a time frame for about maybe two years where I think it was borderline. I, I could have been, I could have been at January 6th on the wrong side of things very easily um, because the conspiratorial thinking that that is so prevalent amongst this group of QAnon guys and stuff. I never, this was before that, so I never was in, introduced to that. But uh, this conspiratorial thinking is something that I was very familiar with, right? It, it smelled like hope in a lot of ways. So like the conspir- conspiratorial thinking that was introduced to me through YouTube when it comes to whether or not the Nazis were actually that bad or whether there's an actual white genocide or the great replacement taking place in America those conspiracies, these ideas that there was a powerful elite, a powerful group of people trying to keep the seek, trying to keep the truth from me. And that was a very familiar sensation because that was essentially what I was told as a kid, that the truth is what I'm being taught from my parents and my church, and that there's a whole powerful elite in the public education system and the government trying to force feed me propaganda. And I need to not listen to it, make sure I only listen to the truth. But like, so that, that conspiracy thinking, that conspiratorial thinking was something very much familiar and I almost almost bought into it. There's a period of time for about two years where I think that I was on the edge there. And if I didn't have my my wife or I didn't have my the disposition that I have of very much, I like, I love research and I love reading and I, I hate being wrong. <laughs> and I, every idea that I come across, I have to find the opposite idea, like just because I want to weigh them. I want to balance them. I was like, okay, well, does opposite idea make more sense than this one? And if it does, I generally go with whatever the one that makes the most sense. And I think without those sort of things that we would have been having a much different interview or if not an interview at all, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably not. But I, so there, there's two things about that experience for you that do strike me. One, and maybe we'll talk about them sequentially here. The first is that um, I think people 
again, the internet as you see it and as I see it is different than the internet that somebody watching this right now or listening to it right now. We don't see the same internet, especially in social media platforms. And so, again, this is another example of how these insular cultures can be invisible to people who are not who are not around them or inside of them because you you wouldn't if you weren't watching the if you were not watching let's say Joe Jordan Peterson video or something yeah. he was you're not for, yeah. Gonna, yeah yeah you're not going to see you know tube is not going to send you oh and also let's talk about how the nazis weren't all bad or something mm -hmm. like that you're not going to see those you're not even going to know that they exist and it's a very serious responsibility and problem for the people who own these platforms um, and for the public to shame them for what they're doing. Yeah, it's a hard thing. It's because like the allure of secret knowledge is something I think we all have, right? I mean, we all want to be in the know. We all want to like, and we all have an innate sense of justice of like, it's there and there has been, and, and that's, I think that's one thing that on the mainstream and the uh, more left, we don't, want to we don't acknowledge enough is that the enemies that a lot of times that these crazy conspiratorial people the QAnon people are are angry at there is a lot of things that they have done wrong like there's a real there's a real problem here and yet they go with the most bizarre out left field crazy answers to these problems like instead of being like oh yeah oh like the most common one i just ran into while visiting in-laws was this guy talking about how barack obama's wife is actually a man and they had stole kids and it's like there's plenty of wrong things that barack obama did. his drone program killed thousands of civilians but yet this is the thing that you're like so there's a real issue that isn't being talked about inside of mainstream very much like the drone programs these things but instead of going with the things that are actual they go with the most bizarre conspiratorial things and i think a lot of it is like what you're saying the feed that they get on these social media the internet's not the same they when you start clicking on these things it's like oh you like this like this you like this keep keep on keep on feeding it to you and how to fix that and that's that's a whole whole nother conversation but i i do think that there needs to be a conversation around the reality of the to bring somebody out of that i think there has to be a, an acknowledgement of like you're right the these a lot of these enemies that you see there are enemies out there but you're going to a crazy direction with this like yes Big Pharma, that's the big thing right now, right? Yeah, Big Pharma has done lots of terrible things to everybody. Like the government's done lots of terrible things, but why are you going with this most obscure thing? We have well-documented cases right here. Let's read about these. Let's try and be like, yeah, let's try and fix the real problems. And the real problems I think are being swept under the rug by both sides because they're both responsible for them. Whereas the bizarre ones, they're like, like they're allowed to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. The, they're right to see that there are problems in society. Mm -hmm. and, there, and, and in one area where this is especially true is that, so the Republican Party does not actually represent the people no. who vote for it. And so, so, the, so their voters do rightfully feel like their concerns are not heard by society. Yeah, but the problem is they're blaming the wrong people for this and they should be blaming looking inward and looking to the people who lead them as the people who did this. Yeah. 
that's something I write about a little bit is how the Republican Party shifted from having a platform of policies to a platform of values as a way of being able to get their base to rec not recognize that what they're doing is harmful to them. So like when the Republican Party shifted to essentially being the party of evangelicals, uh, they had a problem. So for up to that point, the Republican Party was a party of wealthy business owners. And wealthy business owners, the thing that mattered the most to them was obviously policies, taxes, all those sort of things. And, and that, there's holdovers, obviously, for that. But when they became the party of evangelicals, for the most part at the time, it, it, with Carter and, and then into Reagan, they these evangelicals didn't have money. They weren't wealthy individuals. So they couldn't maintain the same platform of being like, yeah, we're going to actively hurt you guys, but vote for us. So they switched over to, oh, we're the party of family values. We care about these things. And they're vague enough to be able to get people like, yeah, I'm going to put whatever meeting I want to that. And this is what's this is what we're going to vote for. I want to vote for the party that is all about America, right? Like whatever that means. <laughs> so they were able, because they knew that what they were doing wasn't going to help their base. So they had to shift it to a whole new thing to be able to maintain the evangelical base. Yeah, I think that's right. And and the other thing, though, about like your process, personal process that I think is illustrative of, of another larger trend is that there the sort of emergence of online atheist activism in the so we're talking about in the period of like the mid 2000s here yeah. in 2010s or to mid to, yeah, like, uh, let's say 2007, roughly to like 2013 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, right. Yeah, and the thing about that, though, is that the this community that kind of emerged, it actually was sort of the resurgence of secular conservatism, but they didn't understand that that's what they were doing. But they had all the same, so in other words, they took the same epistemology that they had had when they were religious, but they just changed the justification, like the starting point. The mm -hmm. thinking processes were all the same, that every, everything is about the elites coming out to get you, to suppress you, and the hidden knowledge, and I'm the lone person who's the only smart one, the only rational one. That's really ultimately what these content creators on YouTube and elsewhere like they and even even like you, you can see it now manifesting with Sam Harris recently who just made a, a speech in which he said that he favored getting rid of civil rights laws because if they were because people the market the free market will determine whether businesses that discriminate against black people that, that will eliminate it all on its own and it's like man that's very Goldwater right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, stop listening to Harris feud. I did not hear that bit. I did, yeah, I think that there's, that's one reason that for me, at least like Christopher Hitchens early on was such an attractive person for me was that he always spoke of these, these classic authors like Spinoza and all these different guys. And that's what got me into reading those people. Whereas I feel like Harris and these other guys, they were always talking about, you know, I, it, it led to obviously like the rise of popular with Jordan Peterson, essentially these self-help gurus um, that were libertarian leaning, just, yeah, like an atheism, the atheist part of it was kind of, I felt like a hook to get into libertarianism, right? Where I, that wasn't, Hitchens was an old school socialist, even though he turned into a pretty much a neocon, but like, 
that libertarians was something that I had come out of, right? By that time, libertarianism, I was a libert forever back. A libertarianism and evangelicalism to me were the same thing in my, like in my mind, not the same thing, obviously, but like they were paired. So like I had been a libertarian since forever. So when introduced to those ideas, I was like, I think this obviously like to me, it's a smack of, of just failed philosophy. Whereas when I started reading Hitchens and started going back and reading his like socialist stuff, I was like, oh, this is something new to me at least. So that's what was more interesting for me. Yeah. Well, and so it's, yeah, it's like, I guess, I mean, maybe for you, were you kind of thinking that, oh, he's having me rethink not just my religious beliefs, but also my political as well. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, at that time, I was very much still, like I said, Hitchens was diehard Iraq war guy and all this stuff. And I was too. So like that, because I, from everything I knew, like, yeah, we totally should have invaded Iraq. Saddam Hussein, bad dude. So I think that was a way of like easing me into it. And then him introducing, like, it was literally reading backwards through time. Like I would start reading his stuff from like, the the 90s and then into the 80s and i was just like okay it started making more sense as we went further back <laughs> and like i and then his ideas kind of led me to other authors and started reading them and then i started really mm-hmm. realizing all the people that he used to like noam chomsky and all these other guys which there's other issues with but like all these other guys now disowned him and I'm like why are the people that he used to be super chummy with why are they now disowning him and so then i started reading them and then more recent stuff and like uh, oh okay this starts to make sense and that's i think even though like Southeast Asia and stuff had really broke my American exceptionalism. I hadn't really connected that with the present political state of the wars and different things. Like my, I, I was kind of all over the place with the cracking of my, my personal religious beliefs, my be- belief in America, all these things that are kind of broken and they're being re put together. And I hadn't, and there's still all sorts of remnants in my, in my brain that I haven't really like, oh, why do I think that? Like that, those sort of things are still, I find every, every so often. Uh, yeah, I, that, I think that's definitely true for a lot of people and so let's maybe end here with how is the so you made these transitions for yourself religious and political mm-hmm. how has it been for you with your relatives like how do they feel about it all yeah i when it comes to like how i relate with my family now it's like it's kind of my dad and i used to get into arguments a lot about like all of all of these things and i think since we had our last big kind of blow up about about religion we kind of it's become an, a bit of a truce like we're just going to just exist with each other I, I love my parents they're great parents despite all their faults in spite of all their faults they are still incredibly loving and my family's an incredibly loving family and they just they bought in really hard because they came from a very poor fam- both of them very, were very poor they both came from very rough families and for them their youth groups, which is interesting, is youth groups that got them into evangelicalism were, were places that were healthy in comparison. And so that brought them into the fold. And that's kind of what religion saved them in a lot of ways. And so they're not going to give up on that. And I, I can respect that. And they, I think they have come to a point where they can respect that they're not going to be able to really change my mind. And luckily enough for them, they believe in a, in a theology that once you're saved, you're always saved. So I'm still going to heaven. So it doesn't really matter, I guess. But yeah, they have, I don't know if they've read the book. So uh, I'm visiting them 4th of July. I guess we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully it goes well for you. <laughs> now, I, I guess like, so what's your, I mean, 
for the future, I think when you look at the demographics, younger people seem to be walking away from a lot of these fundamentalist beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that even the evangelical fundamentalists and other stripes, they can see this happening. And this is why they're so angry, because they feel like the America, they are supposed to own it. And mm -hmm. they're seeing that they won't ever be able to. Yeah, and I think what I'm a little worried that what's going to replace it will be more dangerous. So right now, the like you said, churches are losing their congregations. But what's growing are these parachurch organizations, these parachurch organizations that have large youth components. For example, there's an organization called The Send that had Bolsonaro speaking at it in Brazil, had like 200,000 people, like an insane amount of kids. And these guys are in a way post-ideological in their own conception of things. Like they don't really care if the world's 6,000 years old. They, these things aren't important to them. They're very much the Seven Mountains Mandate, NAR, like the New Apostolic Revolution. Like these guys, these guys are, are kind of everywhere and they're, and they're growing in numbers. Well, I do think but the fundamentals- It's about power. It's, it's about power. power. It's about power, exactly. More so than like, anything else. They don't need, they don't need these, the, the trappings of evangelicalism. They, they get all, and people, it's very attractive for, I don't see quite why, because I grew up like Benny Hinn for me, like my parents thought Benny Hinn was like this lunatic, crazy person. And now Benny Hinn is speaking at these groups to kids uh, and kids are lying into this. Like, like I, it, to me, like, I don't quite understand, like, it's essentially, I guess it's what I grew up with, but with magic. So like, it's pretty popular and they're having huge conferences and it's, they're taking over every single, even the Southern Baptist convention, you see like these seven mountain mandate stuff in there. You see it, it's coming into a lot of different aspects of what mainstream religion, because they see how successful these guys have been and they're trying to import whatever they can from it. It seems like without trying, without changing their ideologies too much but I don't think they'll be able to maintain that. Um, so what's going to happen next after these fundamentalists are out is going to, I, I don't know, it might be even worse. Hmm. Well, hopefully not. I mean, <laughs> but I guess we don't know. So, all right, well, let me put the book up on the screen here for the viewers. So the book is called Youth Group, Coming of Age in the Church of Christian Nationalism. And... We've been speaking today with Lance Aximant. Thanks for being here, Lance. Thank you, Matt. It's been a lot of fun. All right. So that is the program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us. And you can go to theoryofchange.show where you can get full access to all of the episodes. And if you're a paid subscriber, you get the video, audio, and transcript of everything. So I do encourage everybody to do that. You are making this show possible. Thanks very much for those who are already doing it. And if you're not, uh, I encourage you to, to sign up. You can do that on Substack or on Patreon, whichever one you prefer. So thank you very much for that. And if you are not able to subscribe now for whatever reason, please do share the episodes with your friends and family or colleagues. In the podcast world, what they call discovery is the number one barrier to getting a large audience to make things sustainable. So I need your help to do that, to share the episodes and retweet them or put them on Facebook or wherever else you may happen to be. I really do appreciate that. And I will see you next time.